failing in a video game usually leads to a desire to overcome the obstacle next time. So why do we so often live our lives desiring a comfortable bubble where we hand the controller over to someone else? Because aren't these failures what most define us anyway? Welcome to Season 1, Episode 10 of the Evolve Faster Podcast. I'm Scott Ely. Wired to Fail, Leveling Up in the Game of Life Looking the CEO of his company in the eyes with defiance, Koji felt his nerves changing from fire to ice and back again for at least the tenth time since the meeting started. He'd presupposed exactly how this would go, of course, but that didn't curb an almost overwhelming desire to put his fist through the glass table between them. The moment almost justified aggression, but the situation wasn't worthy of an assault charge, so the table remained the current target of Koji's fire. Countless times a day, he wished reality could be more like the video games he created, where he could level up by doing something unexpected and radical, like smashing Larry's desk into a million little pieces. A plausible reality? Dare to dream. What do you mean it's too big of a risk, Larry? Do you want another milestone game or not? This company's current level of success has the word risk written all over it. But suddenly, you want to play it safe and somehow achieve another big success at the same time? Come on, Larry. You're smarter than that and you know it's not going to work. Rapid growth, especially in this industry, isn't possible without a lot of risk and sleepless nights. Larry Mazur, the ongoing CEO of Little Wave Entertainment, sat behind his desk, trying hard to assess how to keep this particular techie happy without losing him. The man standing in front of him was nearly the sole reason for the rapid success of the company. Vihan Koji Raid was a highly respected developer in the gaming world. Almost every game he created received praise for its original gameplay an unpredictable storyline. People described Koji as the Kurosawa of video games. Telling him no wouldn't be well received and was a huge risk for the company. Risking to lose the key man because the man wanted high-risk actions. Fairly ironic when you think about it. As with any given day in the life of a CEO, Larry was being faced to choose between the lesser of two evils. Risk management is as much of an art as it is a science, he thought. Look, Koji, you're our leading game developer, and we've been working together for long enough for me to consider you a friend. Your name is almost synonymous with Little Wave's success. But this game, I don't care what your intentions are, it's just not going to work. It's too dangerous. Imagine the controversy it might spur and the resultant damage it could bring. And that's if it works. If it goes the opposite way, Look, you know I can't greenlight this, especially right now. You must have other game ideas in the hopper. Maybe we can revisit this, with some tweaks to it, after a bigger commercial success. We need a video game that's sure to cash in and not blow up. That's just where we are right now. So what, you're asking me to make a game that plays itself? Do you know me at all? Let the visual department put on the shines and job well done, huh? Come on, Larry. When did the vision of this company go to shit? 
How did challenging games become a thorn in this company's backside when that is what brought us success in the first place? Video games aren't about handing the controller to somebody else. Video games are about challenging you to try and beat it. They used to be a vibrant metaphor for how to approach reality. They're supposed to make you want to throw the goddamn TV out the window. Without that feeling, there can't be the satisfaction of success once you do manage to beat the game. Just look at yourself. Do you think you'd be sitting where you are right now if you hadn't faced failure in the past? How can anyone find satisfaction in life where you don't have to do anything? Does anybody believe happiness is a video game where you always get a perfect score, but not once you get the option of pushing the jump button? Larry, if we lived our lives more like playing a video game, where we embraced failure and fighting through all the tough levels on our own, maybe we'd all master life more quickly. Koji, what in the hell are you talking about? We're discussing a video game here, not the meaning of life. You're getting far too much ahead of yourself. Look, I respect the idea. It's certainly unique and creative, but there's just no way. It's way too dangerous. This could literally destroy the whole company and your career. Have you thought about that? A moment of tense silence filled the air before Koji replied. Or rise it to new heights if it succeeds, Larry. Even more than that, we might go far beyond just being a company if everything goes as planned. We might actually make a difference in this damn world. No, Koji, you're not listening to me. For the first time, Larry raised his voice. He was losing his cool with this childish developer who thought he understood the world of business. Larry regained his composure and tried to lighten the mood. Game over, Koji. Please try again. Come on, I know you must have lots of other great ideas. Koji snapped up his laptop off the table. Then, as calm as he could be under the current emotional influence, he said, Enjoy the auto mode, Larry. I hope the visuals don't disappoint. Koji exited the building without stopping. His path from the CEO's office took him straight through the courtyard of the building. Having heard the shouting and knowing the big meeting was in progress, the eyes of almost everyone in the company stood in windows watching him leave without a single look back. His exit had all the drama of a video game intro sequence, foreshadowing the coming mayhem. You could almost imagine the whole thing unfolding like panels in a graphic novel or a storyboard for an upcoming video game. Returning home, Koji threw his laptop onto the couch. Its landing caused a small, high-tech-looking box to bounce. He got a drink from the kitchen and sat down at his computer. A folder titled Pyrrhic Victory was already open on the screen. He sat reviewing the files in the folder like a sculptor observing his latest statue. Larry was right, and Koji knew it. This game had the potential to be a nuclear bomb waiting to explode. But despite the risk, Koji knew he had to take action. Quitting would go against everything that meant anything to him. And without realizing it, he'd walked into Larry's office, both knowing and hoping he'd get told he was crazy. Nonetheless, deep down, this was the path he truly wanted. Koji felt failure defines who we are. If utilized correctly, failures can bring an individual to greater heights. Because how can you know what you can do if you don't fail first? 
This was the primary reason he became a game developer. He remembered how frustrated he'd get playing Super Mario when he couldn't beat a level. Not at one point did he think of handing the controller to somebody else. And at the time, finding cheat codes was not as simple as it is now because Google and the internet as we know it today didn't even exist yet. That video game did make him angrily want to throw the TV out the window, but he kept playing because he enjoyed the thrill and the challenge. The joy when he finally managed to conquer the level was like a breath of wild, fresh air into his mind and his soul. And he knew the gameplay was defining who he was and reducing his fear to try and fail at other things. He could see the changes in his life. Because to Koji, the same rules applied to everything else. In real life, however, he felt most people were scared shitless to do anything. Most people he interacted with never attempted to exit their comfort zone. They played it safe and hoped someone else would handle their controller or give them the cheat codes for living. Just type, get rich quick, and boom, a million dollars in your account. Now wouldn't that be lovely? But Koji knew better. He knew that although this sounds lovely, it's meaningless. Most people who come into unearned money or cheat their way to success are neither happy nor fulfilled. With Pyrrhic victory, Koji hoped to chip away at this mindset he felt was toxic to human progress. If even a small subset of the millions of people he expected to get playing the game managed to bring some value back from the game into real life, then Koji wouldn't mind the backlash. He'd consider it a victory. But now, Koji was facing another obstacle. Leaving the company meant fewer resources. He was one of the most sought-after developers in gaming, so he wasn't worried about funding or hardware relationships. He had wealthy gamers who loved him and a close relationship with the CEO of the leading gaming hardware chipsets. But there was one weak point in his networks that was critical to the new game. The missing link wasn't technical, but rather was an issue related to neuroscience and a deep understanding of human psychology. Several leaps of faith he'd made about how the human mind worked fueled the current game idea. But these psychological game aspects needed to be perfect, and there were also essential neuroscience implications to consider. Over the previous few months, prior to the failed meeting with Larry, Koji invested in a very strategic search for a psychologist interested in developing a video game with radical potential implications. His preference was someone unhindered by institutional chains with a history of challenging psychological work and neuroscience experience. He was looking for a close partner on a controversial video game concept, so he needed a hired gun who wasn't afraid to ruffle feathers. He'd find a way to pay whatever it took to secure the right mind. After talking to several failed candidates, he received an application from an intriguing individual. His education and skills were pretty much the same as all the other candidates. But what caught Koji's eye was that until recently, the man had worked on that peculiar drug for a government-backed research lab. It had been in the news a lot due to the controversy around the drug. Koji knew what the drug supposedly did, so he was pretty sure he knew why they called it the mule. But what didn't make much sense was why a guy working 
in such a high-profile position would be applying for developing an unknown indie game. Then again, who was he to talk? Until recently, Koji was in a similar situation, with a key role in what was once the most up-and-coming gaming company. That similarity was probably one of the main reasons he decided to give this guy a try. People taking smart risks, who were also not afraid to change course, attracted Koji. After a couple of dull, formal interviews, Koji was nearly certain. Isaac Clark was exactly the doctor the doctor ordered. He seemed to have everything Koji was seeking and, at least on the phone, appeared to be a man continually questioning. Koji felt that this kind of wondering often came with heavy baggage, but also it usually meant that the person had the potential to do extraordinary things. I didn't get a full understanding of what made you quit working on the mule, Koji asked Isaac as they were preparing for their first deep brainstorming session. Based on your interest in my project, I'd think a drug affecting human psychology in controversial ways would be an attractive venture for you. Isaac paused in the middle of going through his notes. It was clear he wanted to answer very carefully. The problem with working for big companies is no matter what position you have, there are certain rules you need to follow and realities you have to accept. The number one rule is that you can't create your own rules. When there are potentially billions of dollars at stake and there's a highly specific goal, individual outcomes and the efficacy of the product aren't always the top priority. He paused and then decided to continue. And while you'd love all commercial ventures to be entirely moral, it's not a requirement of the bottom line. It's a tough pill to swallow, pardon the pun, but this is reality as I've seen it unfold. I've also come to realize that society sometimes outsources to faceless corporations the unsavory things it doesn't want to do itself. We'll pay to hide from the realities of what it takes to make the world work in our favor. Clearly confused, Koji asked, wait, back to the first part of what you just said. The efficacy of the product wasn't the top priority? As if still reluctant to speak, Isaac again deliberately processed his next words. No, the drug did exactly what it was meant to do, which to me was a huge problem. I can't tell you more as I'm involved in depositions about this and I'm under disclosure. Instead, let me tell you about a female test subject I had, which ultimately caused me to exit stage left. Although completely cured, the company had no interest in following up her success, even though I told them it was a huge breakthrough that I could repeat. Koji, recently burned by a different brand of corporate greed, said, let me guess, helping her didn't have enough profit potential. Isaac laughed. None, in fact. She was part of the placebo group. The only reason she got better was a mix of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and some experimental neuroscience. She basically rewired her own brain. It actually worked better than I could have expected. She changed drastically over an 18-month period thanks to her dedication. And yet, they said what I was doing was controversial. That drug is fucking dangerous. Isaac suddenly stopped speaking, 
fearing he'd said too much. But then he shook his head and went on anyway. Many times in fiction, or games even, you have a devil's contract. The protagonist, or player, wants to become something like the world's best athlete, for example. And he's willing to do literally anything. He gets magic shoes that enable him to achieve his dream, even though the shoes take half of his lifespan or something. This is the mule. The drug perfectly calibrates an individual's identity and emotions to their liking. So the patients get what they want, a new identity they think they need. But this improved identity comes with some extra malware lurking in the background to use a computer analogy that you might better relate to. Subtle, nothing obvious. I have my theories about the purpose of the malware, but I've said too much already. I'll have to assume the non-disclosure I signed with you will help protect me from getting in trouble regarding the non-disclosure I signed with them. Goddamn lawyers. Koji nodded. He'd asked the question casually, as the answer was quite important to him. He recalled hearing about the drug and some investigations including the governor and his staff relating to the funding. Koji knew enough to feel good about Isaac's controversial recent history. Not knowing that Koji had heard enough, however, Isaac continued. And somehow, they're starting another trial with a supposedly more potent version. I can't even believe they got it approved. Shows how truly clueless I am about politics and lobbyists. Nevertheless, we did help this woman and most of the rest of the placebo group. And I wanted to continue down that road. But there was no chance, especially in light of the ongoing investigation. They didn't care at all about the fact that the sessions helped the woman change her life for the better. A multi-billion dollar altruistic project. Now that would be a first. Koji laughed. But if Isaac had known him better, he would have sensed that the comment made Koji uncomfortable. It certainly would, Koji said. Profit and altruism rarely make a good couple, he said unconvincingly. Isaac replied, I agree, but enough about that. Tell me about this project of yours. You asked me to prepare materials on the topic of what defines us as humans and on the importance of failure in our lives but you didn't give me any details on the game we'd be working on and why these type of psychological factors would be so important to the design of a video game. I understand you're secretive for obvious reasons. And to this point, I've been cool with you dodging my questions about the specifics. But to be fair, I'm trying to make a big decision about getting involved with this venture as well. So I'm hoping to learn a lot more about the game today and what is so controversial about it. You said in one of your emails that you'd like to recode the way people think to make a difference in the world. But you'll understand my skepticism since my last venture promised that we would rewire people and change the world. It's different, but a little too close for comfort. I'm starting to question my job search process. Koji smiled as he confidently turned on his laptop and poured a glass of water in a fashion Isaac thought was quite melodramatic. I believe that our failures define us as individuals. In fact, I feel failure is one of the key factors that has defined humanity and created society. Only through failing 
and learning to handle our failures can we evolve. Success walks hand in hand with failure. Being in this industry for so long, I see video games as a safe space for people to expose themselves to failure. There are no repercussions if you fail, and there's always a checkpoint if you die. You can try again over and over until you succeed, and the more times you fail, the more rewarding the success is, as long as you click try again. I've been successful because I managed to transfer this mindset to my real life. I always hoped it could be the same for the majority of humanity, but I became bitter with age. All around me are unhappy people, continually chasing that golden goose that might change everything for the better. Instead of drawing the right similarity between the virtual and real life, they concluded you need cheats to make everything easier. Give nothing and receive everything. And with this cheat your way through life mindset, the games got easier, the players got lazier, the industry got richer, and learning from failure and all its advantages started to disappear as a key benefit from games. Koji took another sip of water and continued. I'm aware this is just my subjective theory. So one of the main questions I'm hoping you'll help me answer is, why does failure seem to build up the thrill of success? What's in human nature that makes us create it? But on the other hand, if this is the case, what would cause us to cheat to avoid it? This seems entirely contradictory to me. On the one hand, our level of success measures our failures. But on the other hand, we want everything to be as easy and painless as possible, so much that we'll drop all sense of morals and cheat to avoid hard work. Isaac did his best to process Koji's line of thinking. He dodged the question about the game once again, but at least he was revealing something to Isaac about the way he thinks. After a few seconds, Isaac replied, making clear what defines us is essential for our development as individuals. Our identity is determined primarily by who we are and what we do, but that's all easier said than done. Which part of us means most to us? Is it our practical talents we worked so hard to attain? Or is it the success we have? Or maybe it's just achieving peace of mind while living out our days, knowing at some point we'll have to die. Here's a simple thought experiment you can try. If you had to wipe clean 90% of your mind, what 10% would you keep? In other words, can you choose which part of your mind is most precious to you? This is similar to retrospection of your last success. No matter how hard you think, you'll likely remember only the important details that had the most influence on you. The sands of time and the structure of our brains from evolution bury the unimportant aspects of events in our lives and leave us with only the crumbs for which we care the most. But many minds aren't so great at choosing which crumbs to keep. It would be more art than science if you were actually able to choose what makes you, you. So one question is, do you have the choice? Life, unfortunately, isn't like a video game where you pick and choose the elements that will make up your character, but maybe it could be? Koji gave the thought experiment a try and answered. Well, without overthinking it, if I were able to pick and choose, the 10% I'd keep would be my mindset. 
I feel it's the main driving force behind who I am. Isaac replied, Okay, but let's acknowledge that you're an outlier in the game of life. You're successful, smart, and driven to create something you think matters. Now put yourself in the shoes of an average person struggling to know if they're on the right path or, hell, even just able to pay the bills. You're constantly struggling in life. Each day is just another dull day. Doing something productive you can call your own 10% isn't even in the wheelhouse of possibilities for you. Many people may not even know what a good life looks like, even if it was handed to them on a platter. Koji replied with some excitement. Exactly, Isaac. And that's what needs fixing. You could see this project as helping people find their 10%. It's lost on their own account. And if there's any hope of getting back on track, they need a good push. If they don't do it for themselves, I'll make them do it. I've come to believe this problem will not get fixed without some psychological incentives. And that's why you're here. That's why we're here. Isaac looked Koji straight in the eye. Be careful, Koji. You said it yourself. There's no point in trying to cheat your way through. But I think you need to be careful or you'll become the means of cheating you're trying so hard to eliminate. Defining ourselves can never come from outside. It always needs to come from within us. Even with the noblest intention, what would be the point if you're the one playing the game of life for others? Or even forcing them to take the controller? You just continue the cycle that you're trying to break. Isaac went through his papers until he found a specific part he wanted to highlight for Koji. This brings me to Eric Fromm, a famous social psychologist. Fromm talked about the different character types and the way they comprehend freedom. In particular, he talked about the revolutionary and the sadomasochistic characters. The sadomasochistic character is one who either trades their freedom for safety or takes the freedom of others. He argued that most people will gladly give their freedom to someone else because they fear taking responsibility for their own actions. Or, as you phrase it, they're afraid of taking potentially harmful risks, so they put their fate in the hands of others. When we do that, an interesting battle takes place in our minds. We think we feel secure, but deep down, we know this isn't right. This feeling creates an imbalance in who we are. Then with time, the imbalance becomes us instead. The notion here is the longing to be either dominant or submissive in social relationships. Like, for example, in love, friendship, and even the relationship society has with government. By giving your freedom to someone else, the other person or system takes care of your well-being. But in return, you're stripped of the ability to define yourself. Koji tried to test his understanding of Isaac's words. So, Fromm is saying to feel safe, people tend to hand over who they are to others be it an individual or an entire system. Exactly, Isaac replied. And this also removes their potential to become what they want to be. Keep in mind, there isn't some specific point when that happens. It just happens over time, making it more difficult to detect. And once it starts, going back gets harder and harder. So next, there's the revolutionary character that, unlike the sadomasochistic, isn't afraid to take responsibility. 
people with this character also don't feel the need to take freedom from others. As much as the word might imply, it has nothing to do with revolution as a movement. Instead, Fromm used this word to describe the evolution of an individual, not society. But if two people are at the same crossroads, what's the cause of one person taking the revolutionary path and the other taking the sadomasochistic path? It's hard to say as it's a complex system of social, economic, and even biological elements. But the only consistent factor is that ultimately you must make the decision on your own. Koji took a game controller resting on the table and started miming as if playing a game. Basically, while playing the game of life, one mindset will press try again until it succeeds, and the other will give up and hand their controller to someone else. Isaac smiled. Yes, in gaming terminology, you could describe it that way. So the big question is, how are you planning to trick people into choosing the better path at the crossroads for themselves? Koji hesitated, but he knew he had to share more. All right, remember earlier when I said that many people love playing video games because you're safe from real-life risks? Well, what if you weren't? What if by playing a game, there was a real-life risk? But with the risk also came a real-life reward. People wouldn't play it unless the risk and reward meant something. So I decided to hit them where it hurts the most, their wallet. By playing the game, they'd have a chance to either create money or fear of having not created it. It's a very new twist on an old game, but the stakes are high, very high. Isaac seemed confused. I apologize, Koji, but that sounds as if you've created a gambling game to get people hooked. And that isn't either revolutionary or even moral. Games based on luck and tapping that dopamine thrill of gambling to create addicts have exploited the human mind quite well for centuries. The thrill of thinking that next bet will change your life, but of course, it never happens. Koji replied calmly, Trust me, I know that. In my early days in this industry, I helped develop gambling games. But this game and concept are very different. Money is just the bait while the real risk and reward reside quite literally somewhere else. But money is the focus here because everyone cares about money. That means it will get attention from the biggest possible audience. Still skeptical, Isaac replied. All right, and the game? If it's any sort of basic gambling game, I'll be extremely disappointed. Koji laughed. No, don't worry, it isn't. But when it comes to the gameplay itself, it's nothing new, and the graphics are purposely not the focus. It's a good old-fashioned arcade game where you beat levels. The controls are simple. The algorithm constantly generates new, harder levels, and there's a simple story weaved in, nothing that you haven't seen already. But here's where it starts to get different. It's not about beating the game, it's about playing the game. That's when the game throws the bait, and hopefully, we'll start to see players slowly begin evolving between Fromm's characters. That's when successes and failures become one and you start defining yourself. Koji paused, then said, I'm just not sure. I think it will only work if success and failure truly go hand in hand psychologically as I've envisioned. 
Isaac didn't know what to think, as this was not at all what he'd expected to hear about the game. But Koji's question reminded him of the next point. Although I'm not sure about the game itself yet, let me first try and shed some light on the success-failure connection. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said our actions are questions through which we attempt to find out something. And to him, both success and failure were the answers to those questions. What Nietzsche was saying is that success isn't heaven and failure certainly isn't hell. They aren't two separate things. Success is never just success and failure is never just failure. One influences the other. So if the questioning action is playing the game, the answers would be our reactions. How do you act when you face the next obstacle, regardless if it's in a game or real life? If I understand what you're trying to say, you're hoping to motivate people to use their failures to their advantage instead of giving up under pressure. Or worse, resorting to cheating or giving up control to someone else. But you're still not explaining how the game will leverage money as a motivator to do this without being a gambling game. Koji stared at Isaac as if making a decision. He then turned to his computer and opened a file asking Isaac to take a look. At first, Isaac wasn't sure what he was seeing. Then slowly, a mix of disappointment and confusion came over his face. Don't tell me you're jumping that bandwagon, Isaac asked. As if he'd just climbed the highest mountain peak, Koji answered victoriously. No, Isaac, I'm not jumping. I'm upgrading the bandwagon. Cryptocurrencies? Isaac asked, more confused than ever. Koji continued, suddenly speaking like a kid who was revealing a new fort he'd built in the forest behind his backyard. Exactly. The game will mine its own cryptocurrency. The more you fail at trying to defeat the game, which actually can't be done, the more coins get generated. Just as Isaac was about to speak his mind, Koji interrupted. Yes, I know what you're thinking. And that's the reason why my previous company didn't want to touch Pyrrhic Victory. There's a high risk of the game ruining lives and people getting hooked. But given the current trends where everyone is die-hard trying to get a piece of the crypto cake, this is the perfect bait. There might just be some weak links when it comes to people. That's what needs fixing. And I think it's also the perfect mechanism, as you'll see, to link the psychology of the concept to the realities of the neuroscience, Koji said, staring intently at Isaac to see if he had any clue what that statement meant. But in actuality, Isaac seemed as if he was less and less sure of anything. He began his reply slowly. I always imagine people as chains where each link represents either success or failure in their lives. People are more than happy to have a chain that's full of strong successes. But as soon as a failure comes along, we try our best to convince ourselves that failures somehow don't belong in our chain. We convince ourselves that somehow failures exist outside of us. But in reality, they don't. And just like any success, any of our failures can also be either the strongest or the weakest link in our chain. As much as our success defines us, so do our failures. But this, this doesn't look like anything we just discussed. Don't you think this has far more potential to backfire than succeed? 
it's more likely people will go into this because of their strong desire to have what they desire, which will go against everything you're hoping to achieve. As Isaac was talking, Koji walked over and picked up the small metal box he always kept nearby these days. He returned to the table and began to open it. If someone had just entered the room, they might have thought Koji was proposing to Isaac due to the dramatic presentation of the contents. In the bottom of the box was a small silver chip with flexible edges and a few LED lights in the center. It looked like a piece of the future. Unimpressed by the theatrics, Isaac asked simply, What's that, Koji? Well, it doesn't have a name yet. We'll see if we can come up with something better than the mule. Although I do give you guys credit, that was a pretty clever name. Although Isaac was pleased to hear something other than confusion about the name of the drug he'd spent so much of his life on, at the moment, he was focused on the strange device in Koji's hand. What does this thing do? As Koji put the chip onto his left temple, the gadget made a pleasant beep. The original version was designed for the back of the head, so you'd have to shave a section of your hair. But with some modifications, I've been able to get it working on the temple like this. This reduces friction for the adoption of the technology. Okay, but what the hell does it do? Isaac was growing impatient, sensing the direction in which this was going. But Koji was enjoying the moment, so he continued in slow detail. This isn't like the weak brainwave skullcaps of yore. This is a chemical neurotransmitter of sorts with the power to unwire and rewire neural circuitry. Besides directly connecting to the game, this chip chemically connects to a specific fear center in your brain. Do you know how regular crypto mining uses CPU power? Well, my cryptocurrency won't use computer power, but brain power. Koji paused again to take in the full effect of watching Isaac's jaw physically drop a little at the realization of what this game and this chip had the potential to do. He continued on. To be more accurate, fear of failure. It works only with the game, and the more a player fails, the more currency the game generates. And same as with regular mining, the more you do it, and the more the whole community plays, the harder it gets to mine even a single coin. So, the more the player plays the game, the harder the levels will get, creating more stress and more fear fueled by the desire to succeed. Isaac's initial impression of Koji had been positive. Koji seemed like a good guy who got his kicks out of succeeding and creating things. But now, the thin line between an altruistic angel and an opportunistic devil seemed to be blurring right in front of his eyes. Although shocked, Isaac couldn't help but feel intrigued as well. This was more insidious than the mule even, but he could sense there was also a possibility to do enormous good as well. I'll be honest, Koji, I'm out of words. Where did you get this thing? My notoriety precedes me, I suppose. I have an incredible network in the hardware industry as well. Of course, the chip wasn't exactly designed to do this, but it's software programmable, and with a lot of trial and error, I was able to find the right levers to pull. I didn't even have to hack it that deeply to enable this level of power. So, what do you think, Isaac? I can tell by the look on your face, 
you understand the potential. Reluctantly, Isaac replied, I'm not sure. This is dangerous, Koji. It would seem to me there are way more ways this can backfire than succeed. All the desires, fears, and other primitive feelings people possess, his words trailed off in thought. Then he continued, this just feels like a catalyst for human desire and greed to explode, resulting in extreme levels of fear in the players. Koji gave Isaac a wild-eyed look. Exactly, Isaac, that's the point. Besides, what's wrong with desiring and fearing things? Desires and fears have driven the world to amazing heights. The civilization we live in today, in fact, might look a whole lot less civil without people chasing desires and working hard to alleviate fears. Isaac replied confidently, Look, Koji, the cornerstone of modern psychology is Freud's idea that our unconscious needs and desires define us. Modern marketing, as an example, has been using and abusing this idea quite well. Companies fabricate needs and desires for us through marketing. And when we don't always satisfy these needs and satiate the desires, which would be impossible with all the things we're told we need to have, we feel failure. That's when fear kicks in. The fear gives birth to our ego and the delusion that it doesn't make sense to continue trying. It's a ruthless cycle, and your game has the power to not just abuse human nature, but in fact, brutally exploit it. Life might be like video games, but it's not the same. The checks and balances aren't there. Isaac paused to see if he was getting through to Koji at all. One thing your plan and video games do have in common, however, is the likelihood of human nature leading to a lot of cheating. I assure you, people will try to find any possible crack to cheat this game, especially with all this crypto involved, from hacking to manipulating the system. He stopped again in an ominous manner and then said, and maybe even leveraging other people's fear to their own advantage in the game. Koji replied in an almost cocky tone, I understand, but I don't agree. Video games and life are more the same thing than they are different. Nobody wants to get stuck on the same level forever. Koji paused, then gave Isaac the same rehearsed line he gave Larry. If we lived our lives more like playing a video game, where we embraced failure and fighting through all the tough levels on our own, maybe we'd all master life quicker. Koji had lost control of the meeting. He wasn't sure anymore if Isaac was the right fit. But Koji didn't like losing. And repeating this painful search for a partner with the right psychological skills and outlook sounded awful to him. So he decided to divulge more in the hopes of swaying Isaac with the potential of the game. How do we end up beating any video game, no matter how hard it is? I feel it's by reflecting on foundations on which our decisions are built, either on success or failure. We make a bad jump and we lose a life. Next time, we know to do something different or else we'll lose another life. Progress, 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 Isaac. This world needs it more than ever. Even more so, it begs for purification from disgusting passivity, laziness, and cheating through life. No important change happens without chaos, Isaac. And the bigger the chaos, the bigger the change that's possible. 
there will be some casualties, but human nature can't evolve without some pain. Feeling on a roll, Koji continued without waiting for a reply. As for your concern of hacking, I just had an idea. Imagine if players have to reflect on who they are, a sort of real-time simulation of failing. Isaac replied, I'm not sure I understand, Koji. Koji continued with excitement, feeling that they were finally actually brainstorming something useful instead of wasting time. What if we programmed the game to be completely bulletproof? Each attempt to cheat triggers a code. That code will automatically deem cheating as a failure and impact the mining. Don't you see? It creates a perfect circle. The algorithm will notify the cheater when the fear kicks in, causing the cheater's brain to mine even more. Pleased with his new idea, Koji murmured to himself, Yes, this will be perfect. This will cause casualties, of course, but more winners as well. The ultimate Pyrrhic victory. Isaac had heard enough. No, this is way too dangerous. It will ruin people's lives. I think you're blinded by your need for this to succeed. This game you want to play with human nature is over, Koji. Koji's smile turned to a frown. The game is over? Almost the same words Larry used when he shot his idea down. Well, of course it will. What do you expect? There are always casualties in evolution, Isaac, for change to happen. Isaac stood his ground. And there always has to be a man's blind desire for success to ruin everything. And to think that failure is what you're so obsessed with. Tell me again, Koji, what's your 10%? I think you lied to me and maybe yourself when you answered that question earlier. Before Koji managed to say anything else, Isaac gathered his stuff and left the room. In the car ride home, Isaac couldn't stop thinking about Koji's project, making people play a game to win crypto coins. This felt so wrong. And that chip, what was Koji's benefit in this? It surely couldn't be just the lust to succeed. How will players access their mined coins? Is there even an end in sight? In other words, can anyone actually win the game? Was this all a big plan for Koji to gain financially? What was he thinking? Back in his room, Koji had forgotten all about the meeting. He sat at his computer and continued developing the game as if Isaac had never been there. He decided he no longer needed a partner to help with the psychological aspects of the game. He had his answers. An echoing silence filled the courthouse as the final gavel fell. Just days before, the last witness explained her experience and the disastrous effect Koji's Pyrrhic victory had on her life. She lost her job, relationship, house, and her life was a mess of fear and regret. Every morning she woke up, if she'd even slept the night before, with the game controller still in her hand. She was an addict and now feared everything but the game. She got temporary comfort playing the game, but as she approached what she thought was the end, it brought her enormous anxiety to find out another level appeared. Where is the goddamn end of this game? She'd shrieked to a terrified jury. In between games, every single time, she would log back into her crypto wallet and hit refresh at least a hundred times. 
she felt she was owed millions in peer coins, or as they were derogatively known, Koji coins. This witness, an emotionally unstable but believable train wreck on the stand, was the final nail hammered into Koji's coffin. The story was front page news, and the look on the faces of the jurors witnessing this scene said it all. The prosecution had to choose from thousands of witnesses who all wanted to testify the same story or worse. Many even swore they knew people who took their own lives as a result of the game, but in trying to produce the proof, claimed there was an elaborate cover-up. After much deliberation, the judge started reading the final verdict, guilty on all counts. What became known as the Game Over Trial took five years to finish, considering the elaborate investigation that preceded it. The primary defendant calmly sat in his chair every day of the trial, accused of more felonies than anyone could count. Although advertised as having an end, no one could ever finish the game, and no one ever received any coins. And what was probably more intriguing, no one could prove if the coins even existed. It was supposedly a blockchain hidden in plain sight, according to Koji, but he refused to divulge any more information. An entire false market for Koji coin now existed on the internet. There were even charts people could access, theorizing its market cap in the billions. Yet nobody actually had them in their crypto wallet, except the expected charlatans, scammers, and liars claiming they were of the select few who'd cashed out of the game. The emotional theatrics in the courtroom, in other words, were exactly that and nothing more. Koji was guilty of fraud and countless other acts, but the prosecution was taking no chances. They knew the facts of this white-collar crime would be very complicated to understand for your average juror. They'd focus on these aspects in the civil trial later. But for this criminal trial, the emotional distress his game had caused was what people would relate to, and relate they did. The most bizarre issue arose after more and more cases of the chip merging with the user's flesh surfaced during the final weeks of the trial. There were ghastly photos online, although none verifiable, of people removing the bloody chip from their temple with knives, pliers, and other medieval-looking tools. It seemed like something straight out of a sci-fi horror movie. This weirdness was raised in the trial, but thrown out by the judge, as no one, even the prosecution, knew what to make of it. These photos and details were the only part of the trial that clearly surprised even Koji. But knowing the source of the chip, and what its designer had created it for, Koji had his suspicions that this was a design feature, not a bug. Koji knew his fate before the trial started. It seemed clear that even he believed some of the witnesses, but nothing in his face or body language indicated even the slightest trace of fear. Although the accused, Koji was always the most serene person in the room. With that final hit of the hammer, Koji actually looked relieved, but also unaffected by the verdict. Outside, blinding camera flashes that seemed like fireworks welcomed him. Koji couldn't help but smile. It seemed more like a welcoming ceremony for a hero than what it actually was, the finale 
of his formerly free life. Early on in the trial, like a father punishing a son, the judge banned Koji from going online. As a known computer expert with a massive network of hacker friends, the prosecution put Koji in a sandbox to contain the original evidence. He'd get updates from his attorneys as to the temperature read online. Koji was allowed to hire a technical consultant to manage his affairs by verbal instructions dictated in their weekly meetings. But the only access Koji had was to one specific laptop during these sessions. It had no Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, or network access cards in it of any kind. The device, in fact, was inspected by the prosecution before every meeting. It was effectively a lame duck laptop, a glorified calculator he appropriately nicknamed Daffy. But he was granted this to be able to decipher the prosecution's technical evidence delivered on USB drives. He could also then use it to write out technical descriptions of replies to the evidence for his defense. His attorney would also bring in an enormous pile of printed emails to every meeting. With each day closing in on the end of the trial, messages from people around the world flooded his email box, ranging from highly descriptive death threats to gushing gratefulness worthy of reviews of a Tony Robbins seminar. And in between these extremes, the emails touched every aspect of the emotional spectrum in between. All of it was accessible to both the defense and the prosecution at this point. So for the most part, Koji stopped reading. The day before that final gavel fell, in the last meeting with his attorney and consultant, Koji requested some time on the laptop, or some touching last moments with Daffy, as Koji had joked. Realizing this might be the final chance he'd ever have to access a computer of any sort, Koji decided to write a message to the millions of people affected by his game. In fact, if things went as planned, it would soon be billions. One last letter before he was forced to sign off, thereby authorizing his creation to go on to lead a self-determining life. There were no guarantees he'd even have access to his consultant again after the verdict. He wouldn't be surprised if permanent solitary confinement were in his future due to the heinous, widespread, and irreparable crimes as described in the case. And if they could ever pin those supposed suicides on him, and there were a lot of them described online, the death penalty wouldn't be out of the question depending on which state prosecuted him. But the important thing was, he'd already done all that he could from his pre-conviction incarceration. The strategy was in place and the plans in motion. There was nothing that could stop what he'd started or what was yet to come, even his disappearance from the face of the earth. He wondered how long it would continue. Would they ever figure out the truth? Either way, he didn't really care. What he did care about was what he felt would be his actual legacy in the long run. The millions of people he'd helped and would continue to help with his game who loved him for it. These were the people that mattered, the ones who understood that it never mattered if PeerCoin was real or not. The blank page and blinking cursor stared back at him. Of course, he'd already thought a lot about what he'd say if it came to this. But now that the moment was upon him, he really didn't know how to start. Koji had toyed with the idea of including in this letter 
a fable his mother used to tell him when he was a child. As he sometimes did when coding to get into flow, he decided to seed his consciousness with ideas to kickstart his brain. In this case, by typing out the old fable insofar as he could remember it. The keys began clicking rapidly in the quiet back courtroom. A long time ago, an old man had a son who, while taking care of the crops, got attacked by a tiger and suffered a heavy injury. A friend of the old man said to him, what a terrible misfortune, your son won't be able to work. The old man said, maybe, maybe not. As the son was recovering, he fell in love with a local woman who often brought him food. After he recovered, they created a happy family. The friend once again came to the old man and said, what a fortune, your son has found love. The old man once again said, maybe, maybe not. Years have passed, the love vanished, and the woman took the son's money and ran off. Again, the friend came and said, what a terrible misfortune, your son is poor. Of course, the old man said, maybe, maybe not. With no money to his name, the son set off into the world where he made a name for himself, and the chain of success and failure kept on going. Koji stopped typing with a smile. He read back over the fable briefly once more before deleting and starting the document fresh. It worked as he began to feel his creativity kicking in. His challenge was making sure he spoke to the gamers who got it primarily, yet not alienate the rest of the world he wanted to intrigue by the message. The keys again began clicking as he wrote the subject line. You have been lied to. The key to life is available to you. Dear gamers and those who want to know the truth, have you noticed how hard it's become to learn to master things in life? Doesn't it seem strange in a world where you have access to everything, with nearly everything handed to you on a platter, but you still don't feel satisfied? And have you noticed that your drive to succeed and master things drops when you realize the world is full of cheats and someone to do the hard work for you? Society has lied to you. You live in a world where you're always searching for a good life. What you're told to look for to achieve this is an entirely false idol. You work hard, rarely managing to obtain what you're so desperately seeking. You're misled by the media and modern culture to think you need all sorts of things, buying products you don't need, spending money you don't have, to be satisfied. And this conditions you to cheat in life or quit trying because you can't possibly fulfill all the fake needs and desires that are created for you by people and companies who want something from you. Retrospect on how many times you stopped learning something because you failed. Was that the real failure? Or was the fact that you gave up the failure? One of the things you would likely define yourself by is what you've made of yourself and your mind. Upon deep reflection of your life, you'll find that it's the creations you've made in life and the skills you worked hardest at attaining that will mean the most to you. So in reflecting on this, shouldn't you restructure your life right now to make sure you're mastering those things? Otherwise, the creations that come of them might never be born. To this end, there are a few things you must ask yourself. What defines you? 
Are you defined by what you can do? Or are you defined by your successes and failures and how you handle them? Are you willing to dedicate the time to master the things that most define you? How badly do you want it? What are you willing to sacrifice? If you're a master at something, isn't that more important than merely having a passion? Only through failing can you actually succeed in becoming who you are. A Pyrrhic victory is a victory that comes at a cost so great it doesn't seem like a victory. But it's entirely up to you if it will be a success or a failure. Being free to do what you want is the only thing you should strive to achieve. To be a free individual, unafraid to embrace the consequences of your actions, no matter how dire they are, is the ultimate human aspiration. Your days are numbered. Let that alone be the only inspiration you need to live a life of pure satisfaction, one failure at a time. Do not hand the controller of your life over to somebody else. Hold it as tight as you can and keep on playing. The victory is only Pyrrhic if you don't use it to learn how to fail successfully. The tool to retrain your brain to love failure and therefore to become a success in life is now at your fingertips for free. Please try again over and over and over. Good luck and farewell. Vihan Koji Raid. The FBI director woke up with a smile. It was finally over. Five years of his life spent on that gaming hack and all the problems his followers and haters had caused in his life. There might be an appeal, of course, but the victory was such a landslide that he had no concerns. The worst was over. Shuffling out to get the paper, he looked up at the sky. It was a sunny Saturday morning, and today he'd take his kids to the park instead of being buried in the goddamn case that had stolen his life for as long as he could remember. Koji's sentencing yesterday had gone even better than planned. He might as well be dead. He sat down at the kitchen table, smiling at the headline about his victory. But as he turned the paper over to the prominent back page, he dropped his coffee onto the floor, shattering the mug, spraying hot coffee onto his feet. A full-page ad stared back at him, featuring Koji's letter, along with a website address with details on how to play Pyrrhic Victory. A surge of stress and adrenaline rushed through him as he quickly read the letter. He didn't want to look, but reluctantly, he accessed the website listed in the ad on his smartphone. He watched as it redirected him several times to a hacky-looking offshore web address. His heart nearly stopped as the words Pyrrhic Victory popped up. It appeared to be a simplified version of the game that could be played right in the smartphone browser. No controller or desktop needed. He refreshed the page and he watched in horror as it moved him to a different server also hosting the game, and another, and another, each refresh sending him to some far-flung shore hosting the game. It was everywhere, and a short, simple video on the homepage of each site explained the game the coins, the vision. Everything he'd worked so hard for, for over five years to decimate, was now bundled into an attractive 
appealing, easy-to-try package, spreading like a virus. But wait, he thought, without the chip. And then he saw it. The end of the video showed a simple search bar where you could enter your address. He checked his home address. Every coffee shop within a five-mile radius came up with instructions on where to find the chips, and also guidance on where to find more if the location was empty. They were free for the taking in a box lightly hidden at each location. He typed in a series of cities around the world, London, Hong Kong, Buenos Aires, Cape Town. Each one showed what looked like hundreds of locations where a person could get the chip. How in the hell had he possibly coordinated all of this? His heart sunk as he next checked his email. There were hundreds of new messages from every agency similar to the FBI around the world, as well as the chief editor of just about every important news agency. His inbox looked like a who's who of intelligence gathering and high-ranking media officials. He scanned a few of the emails, already knowing what they probably said. He then looked through the names in his inbox for his special agent in charge of the Koji case, and in fact, he found several. He opened the latest one with an appropriate subject line of, oh fuck. His mouth dropped open as he began to read the details of what appeared to have transpired overnight. About 12 hours after Koji's sentencing, in the middle of the night, the new, open-sourced code for the simplified version of the game was seeded onto thousands of major servers simultaneously. The Pyrrhic Victory website, formerly shut down with an FBI notice in its place, was replicated overnight on what appeared to be thousands of offshore domains, which were nearly untouchable. These things were like cockroaches. You killed one off, only to find 10 more had come out of the woodwork. And the letter was seeded onto online forums and sent from thousands of legitimate sources to major email servers. It had been masterfully spammed, in other words, to millions of people. Facebook, Twitter, and Google were all flooded with ads for the new game. They'd sent agents to dozens of the chip distribution locations, but it was too late. Most of the boxes were almost empty already and all the locations reported unusually high volumes of customers since the minute they'd opened. Everyone appeared to be respectfully buying something from the shop before taking a chip, just as the website had instructed. And the enormous full-page ad appeared in every major print newspaper in the world, as far as the agent could tell. The FBI director put his hands on the side of the kitchen table, he would have snapped it in two if he were strong enough. By effectively killing Koji, he had actually given birth to the real, mass-market version of the game. The story behind Pyrrhic Victory and Koji Coin was just too enticing, especially now that he'd been made a martyr for both gaming as well as a sort of identity development revolution. He slowly walked upstairs, to tell his kids he would not be going to the park today as planned. The game, it was now clear, was far from over. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. 
it takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.